This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn and today is Thursday, February the 23rd. Now podcasting, it's a bit of a strange medium, I have to say, because I'm here in my home office in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I conduct the interviews virtually, I edit them down, produce the episode and put it out. But after that, as you hear from all of these leaders across the country in each episode and learn about their inspirational efforts to save lives, of course, this podcast is about entertainment. We want you to enjoy listening to this, but we really want you to learn from this. And not only learn, but take what you hear, take what you learn, and try things in your community with your organization. Now, podcast analytics, they're not that great to begin with, an industry-wide issue for sure. And as you know, when your data isn't good, it's hard to know when things are performing. And ultimately, performance for us with this podcast is action, right? Knowing that this is impacting people to try some of these best practices. But as I said, podcast analytics aren't that great, industry-wide. And even if they were, downloads couldn't measure when that part happens. When someone hears something on this program that leads to a change in policy, something that increases increases lives saved. The only way that we can know that this podcast is helping you is when you tell us. So that's why I was so excited to receive the email about what was happening at the rescue organization Secondhand Hounds in Minnetonka, Minnesota. It's a suburb of Minneapolis. Something they'd heard in episode 67 back in June of 2021. The title of that episode was, If Nobody's Perfect, Why Do We Expect All Adopters to Be? The guest was Lawrence Nicholas, who today is the COO of the Jacksonville Humane Society. I think the thing that's interesting, too, about forever, like forever homes and adoptions lasting forever is that we all, yes, that's something that is in our lexicon and it sticks in our minds. But then when we talk about fostering, we're perfectly OK with it being fluid. But what's the difference, really? We're, we're taking a, a pet into the home for a while and deciding if it's a good fit or not. And if our, you know, our foster parents that we love, that we build our organizations around, decide that they can't keep a pet anymore because it's not working out in their home. We, we take the pet back, we give them a hug and we send them with somebody else. But when an adopter does it, all, all that's different is that they signed a different piece of paper, but it's the same situation. They're taking an animal home to see if it's a good fit for their family or trying to help the shelter or whatever is motivating them to decide to take home a pet today. And if, if for whatever reason that doesn't work out in the future, that's that's perfectly okay. We should we should think about every adoption as a foster because it's it really the difference. There really is no difference. There will be a link in the show notes on your podcast player to episode sixty seven. But you can always access all of the podcast episodes and resources by going to bestfriends.org/podcast. Bestfriends.org/podcast. So that episode struck a chord with the leadership at Secondhand Hounds, and they got sent around to others in the organization, and they ultimately made the decision to change their adoption processes to be more inclusive. Now, we caught wind of it because one of my colleagues here at Best Friends, she lives in that area. She is a foster parent for them, and she saw the email you will hear referenced today in the interview. I, so I reached out to the executive director of the organization, Rachel Mayrose, and I said, please, come talk to me about what's going on. Because as much as this is an immense source of pride for us that the podcast is impacting people like this, I think their story, the story of Secondhand Hounds, will only help others as they too grapple with some of these very big questions about the type of organization they want to be. So check it out. Here's my conversation with Rachel Mayrose, the executive director of Secondhand Hounds in Minnesota. 
Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Oh man, okay. Where to begin? Oh man. Um, well, I just I wanted to say thank you for doing the podcast originally because it really did make our whole leadership team think about what we were doing and the barriers that we had inadvertently put up to adoption. So I just I wanted to say thank you for doing this podcast and and reaching so many different people across the country and probably across the world to make them rethink the way that their processes are going and hopefully changing for the better. Well, of course, that's what I want to talk to you about today. But I'd love to start really just with learning more about you and Secondhand Hounds. So Rachel, tell me more about the organization. Where is it? What? Why? All of it. <laughs> all the things. Um, yeah, all of it. So Secondhand Hounds is a nonprofit foster-based animal rescue based in the Twin Cities, so Minnesota. And it was founded in 2009 by yours truly when I was seven months pregnant with my daughter and thought that I think hormones made me think I was like superhuman, right? Superwoman. I can do anything. So I told my parents and my husband I wanted to start a rescue and they said, you're crazy. And I said, tell me something I don't know. And uh, we, you know, I decided to start this rescue and it was a really small, like kind of mom and pop out of my basement love, like just tiny little creation. And I didn't ever think it was going to get much bigger than that. I wanted to save a few dogs. Like that was the goal, right? Um, save a few dogs. And I think that the fact that I'm a people person as much as I'm an animal person made people become attracted to the way that we were running it and, and our vision. And quickly it grew into something that I had no idea that it was going to become. You know, we went from saving 30 animals to 80 animals to 300 animals, and now we're saving just under 3,000 animals annually. So it, it definitely, it scaled up. And with that came a lot of um, hardship on how to move forward, how to reach different communities. And to be honest, it hasn't really been something that has been in the forefront of any of our minds until about four or five years ago. I think that I had a, a good friend of mine, Marlou, who told me one day that the way that I was doing animal rescue um, was perpetuating kind of this elitist white suburban animal rescue, like normalcy, like that, that's what it was, right? And, and I had started this rescue with other white suburban people. So I became aware very quickly of just, just the fact that that wasn't okay. And that what I had been doing and the way that the, the organization was running was kind of perpetuating that and not on purpose, but just because I hadn't even thought about it. It wasn't even something that was at the forefront of my mind, right? You're just focused on that next dog, that next cat. And um, and when you took a step back and you realized kind of what your effect was on the larger community and animal rescue in general, it became very clear very quickly that the way that we were doing things were actually causing the problems and, and making it you know, like that, that un internal bias and all that, uh, we were kind of making it easy for people to discriminate. Um, you know, that's like a scary big word. And, and I throw it around all the time. And I think people are like cringe, but I'm like, we have to say what it is, if we're ever going to solve it. And so definitely have been on a journey in the last few years to try to be better, um, and to listen and to be more inclusive. And I had no idea that our adoption process was such a big issue until, honestly, we listened to your podcast. And it, it hit us like a ton of bricks that by reducing barriers to adoption, we would save more lives. And by keeping barriers to adoption, animals were literally going to be sitting in shelters and dying in shelters because of it. And, and that, that hit us over the head. And we made changes 
pretty immediately. We started to brainstorm about what we could do and how we could fix things and how we could change the process and what barrier, why, the why behind the barrier. And I think that was something that I hadn't considered previously is the why behind it. It was just like a knee jerk. Well, this is how I was taught when I was 19 and started fostering. You have vet checks, you make sure people have spayed and neutered animals, you, you know, you let the fosters decide exactly who they want to adopt to, you give them every option under the sun when you have multiple applications, like all of these things, landlord checks, city limit checks, all of it. It was just, it was so innate and and, and had just become part of the process that we forgot to consider the why. And once we did, it became very clear that those were no longer necessary. So help me understand the adoption process then at Secondhand Hounds. Yeah. You've got foster parents, big foster-based network. Mm-hmm. It, do you have a facility? You know, Because I, I don't think I realized the size of the organization until I went on your website doing research for the episode and I saw your staff page and the programs you do. Yeah. You know, foster-based organization, but that's just one part of what you do, right? You're two and a half, three million dollar range annual revenue? We're five now. I mean, our, our yeah. Yeah, last year we were at 4.8. Wow, congrats. Yes, so not a small organization by any means. So again, as far as the adoption process, the way I understand it is your foster parents, they are deeply involved in the process. So right now, as it stands, we do have a brick and mortar facility in Minnetonka where we do like animal intake. So um, we take animals locally. We take animals from out of state and they come here and they get their intake photos, their intake vetting, you know, all the good stuff. Their fosters pick them up and get all the supplies that they need to to be good foster parents and to make it free for them. And then, yes, our, our foster parents are deeply involved in the process. You know, if you had asked five years ago what that process looked like, we just sent every single application that we got for that animal to the foster parent. Because we are one of the biggest or monetarily the biggest animal rescue in Minnesota, we get a lot of applications, like a lot. If you have a cute puppy, we might get 30 or 40 before we were able to take that dog down off the website. And before we were asking our foster parents to kind of wade through those applications and pick which ones they thought seemed like the best fit. Unfortunately, you run into the problem of people thinking that the best fit looks like them. That's always been a problem, right? Um, And so we realized that people were picking adopters that had a similar situation to themselves. A lot of our fosters are suburban, you know, people who have a fenced in yard and a picket fence and, you know, all this stuff that you think of like as this perfect home. And so we, they were, they were looking for that same thing in the apps. They were like, oh, it needs to be, they need to have a yard. They need to have a fence. They should, you know, they shouldn't have shared walls, like all of these things that we have kind of forced ourselves to think of as the best pet parent is is what who we were adopting to predominantly. And it gives no chance to anybody else, which sucks. And we realized that um, we were kind of setting the our fosters up for failure as well as far as, you know, being inclusive because we're giving them all these options. I, I like to use an example. My mom is a New York Times bestselling author. I've got to shout her out. And if she writes an application to adopt a dog, you're going to cry, you're going to laugh, you're going to be like, this is the best home ever. And then you might have somebody whose second language is English filling out that same application. And that home might be better for that dog. But if my mom is compared side by side to that person, you're going to pick my mom nine times out of 10. And that's not fair. And so it came down to like equity and how do we make it more equitable? How do we make 
give everyone a chance. And really what we decided was we needed to just strip away all of that like fluff on the application. Nobody needs the fluff during the application process. We need to know the basics. We need to know, do you have other dogs or cats so that we can say, well, little Fluffy over here hates other dogs, so it's not going to be a good fit. Or we need to know if you have kids, little kids, because maybe, you know, there's a dog that adores little kids. Stuff like that that's more making a best fit behaviorally for the animal was great. But we took everything off as far as like fenced yard, um, shared walls, whether you rent or own, like any of that stuff we, we removed so that it became less of a like pitting two people against each other and more just information gathering at the very highest level. And, and it also made it more accessible for people to fill out the application because before it was this three-page application that really, you know, was discriminatory and and not fair. And now it's very simple to fill out an application. So people that um, maybe aren't comfortable with a long application feel more comfortable coming and saying, I can put in my bid for this animal. So anyway, right now we send one to two applications to each of our foster parents. And that is a change as of January, 2023. And that change was hard for a lot of our fosters. I think a lot of our fosters were really excited about the changes, especially when we describe the why behind them. But a lot of our fosters felt frustrated by that because they liked being able to kind of have their pick of the litter for adopters, so to speak. And that was an interesting conversation to have because, you know, at the end of the day, of course, we want the best fit for every animal, but we have to look at the bigger picture. And I think that in Minnesota, we have a really unique kind of like situation where we have way more adopters than other states or other communities. And so we've gotten to this place where we can be super picky. You know, we could take our time and be super picky. But at the end of the day, it just I keep going back to the fact that if we don't do this as a nation, as a as a industry, it's never going to work. You know, you can't say, oh, if you have a lot of adopters in the state, then yeah, you should, you can be elitist, you can be exclusive, you can say, well, we're going to pick the best person for the animal. And then you also, on the flip side, say, what's the best person for the animal? Like, I keep going back to that. Like, what is that perfect adopter? And that's something that you talked about on the last podcast is our definition of perfect is crazy and unattainable. And at the end of the day, it doesn't mean that that dog or cat is going to have a better life. It just might have a life that looks more like your life. And like, we got to get over that, you know, got to move on from that. Let me ask you the numbers then to just try to quantify this with the old system. Let's say I'm a potential adopter. I go on your website. I see a pet I like. I fill out the application. My app goes to that foster parent only like if I'm denied, uh, do I get considered for other pets? You know, is, is my application sort of going back into another pipeline? Do I have to reapply? Because the reason I'm asking this one is I saw an email that the secondhand hounds you sent out to, I believe you sent it out to foster parents and it quoted a number 10,600, 10,600 adoption applications that were denied in a two year period. Is that number all individual people? Were some of them applicants who had applied more than once? Like, I'm just trying to get a handle on the scale. And I know data can be overwhelming and, and too much can be tricky on a podcast. So I apologize. <laughs> no, but it, numbers are important, right? Data is important and it, it helps us drive forward and, and make decisions. So I like talking about it. But 
Um, yeah, we had 10,682 applications in the in the 2021 to 2022 year period. And those were just denied adoptions. So and that was not denied like you aren't good enough. That was just like you aren't good enough to meet this animal, which is horrible, right? Like it's still you're not good enough. But it wasn't saying you can't apply for another animal through our organization. Most of those people do not keep filling out a new application. They just email us and add to their application. So that is pretty close to the number of individual families that applied and didn't get an animal through secondhand hounds in those two years, which is an exorbitant amount of people. And I think about how many people were completely turned off of rescue based on that like interaction. So they sent, this was historically, they sent the application in. We sent the first four to five applications that came in to the foster parent. The others, we said, sorry, you were too late. The dog's already, you know, no longer accepting applications. We'll let you know if the first five don't work out. So a lot of those were just told, like, from the get-go, you're not even going to have an opportunity to meet this animal. And we realized how frustrating that is for adopters and how many people that could turn off, especially because we have, I've heard anecdotal stories often of people who keep applying for a new dog or a new cat over and over again, and they are still not hitting that four to, first four to five. And this is, again, this is a Minnesota problem. This isn't in a lot of areas, I don't think. We we are an animal-loving community who doesn't have a ton. Of, we're, we're a pretty low-kill state, and so we're bringing animals from other states, and, and we are trying to find adopters for them. And, and the adopters aren't really the problem. Um, and I think that goes back to why our fosters, some of our fosters had a big problem with the changes that we were making because they're like, we have plenty of adopters. Why are we saying that we should be adopting to the first people to apply versus having our pick of the adoption litter, so to speak? Like most founders of rescue organizations, you wear many hats. Yeah. Uh, I saw on the website, you're also the director of marketing. I, I actually just gave that hat up last year, which is so great for me. <laughs> well, congrats. That's a big step. Uh, but but you have a background in marketing. You understand it. And, you know, for me, I often think of these times when organizations, whenever we interact with the public, it's an opportunity for lead generation, right? However this person got to us, they're here now. And this adoption application, this attendee of our trivia night event, whatever it is, this that's the start of the relationship, right? Hopefully a lifetime relationship. And the adoption application process, like we have your name, we do start to get to know that person. So when you tell me those numbers, you know, the 10,600 denied applications, like I just see that, if nothing else, Rachel, as lost leads. Oh, 100%. And, and that's even more than that, because that 10,000 number is just the people that didn't, like we also adopted out to almost 3,000 people. So it's just, it's a crazy amount of people to have, like you said, lost leads on. And so your position over time when you see that was, hey, we've just got more adopters than we need. So, you know, good problem to have. Totally, totally. I, I think that, you know, you're just, anybody in animal rescue knows that it's just putting one foot in front of the other. It's just, we're trying to just keep up, right? So thinking about those people in a different way was, it, it took some time and some introspection. And now- we've completely changed that focus and said, all right, so now we're only going to accept two applications per animal. We're not going to accept more. But if 
for every, in, in like, for example, I think you've probably seen that Maddie's fund is doing an open arms challenge in April. And so our open arms challenge is to have an adoption matchmaker who then takes anybody who applied and didn't get selected for an animal and says, now I'm going to talk to you about the options to get an animal in your home. And so we're not just letting those leads go. We're saying you're part of the secondhand hounds community. You're part of what we're trying to do here. We think that you're a great person to own an animal. Let's talk about your options, whether that's applying for another dog or cat, whether that's going to our foster base and saying, here's the adopter. Does anybody have a fit? Or whether it's saying, have you considered fostering? I mean, we're every single foster based organization is hurting for fosters. We always right. That's the that's the bottleneck. And so if we can convert those leads that of people that we know want an animal in their home and say fostering, you get to test drive this animal, you get first right to adopt it. And if you don't, you just saved a life. I mean, that's hard to say no to. And so we have we've completely re calibrated the way we were thinking about it. And it's it's super exciting because we're already seeing the changes that we made in January. We have our data from January and we already see that that improvement. And that's exciting for somebody like me. Yeah, we do need to make sure we mention the guest in the episode that brought you here today. And that guy is Lawrence Nicholas. He's now the COO of the Jacksonville Humane Society in Florida. At the time we taped that episode, he was the COO of the Peggy Adams Animal Rescue League, also in Florida. And I'm going to mangle this quote, but he said something related to that in that episode, which was something to the effect of there's no such thing as a failed adoption for them. Like, we're okay with fosters keeping animals in a, a short term or even a longer short-term uh, time period, and then bringing them back, that's fine, but we're somehow not okay when that's an adoption. I love that you're continuing to engage those adopters now because one of the questions I had for today was to ask you if you know or if you have any sense of where the thousands of denied applicants went. Did some of them go on to adopt from you ultimately? Did they go to another rescue, a breeder, a backyard breeder? You know, we've done episodes on this in the past, and we've got a survey on the Best Friends Network website right now. There'll be a link to that in the show notes that talks about how people are becoming turned off to adoption, especially younger generations. The average person isn't us, Rachel. It's not really the people listening to this podcast. And I say us, I mean everyone involved in this. Staff, board members, donors, volunteers, folks who are engaged with life-saving. We choose to adopt. It is like a moral imperative for us, right? It's incredibly important. We'd never go to another source. But let's be real. Most pet owners are not us. And they're still going to get pets. <laughs> so yeah, we can educate and we've done that. You know, please don't go to unscrupulous breeders. Something we've done for decades now. But if we educate folks and we convince them to adopt and all they ever hear is no, then how effective has that truly been? So yeah, it's great to hear that you've shifted to keeping the conversation going with those denied applicants. You know, I know it's early, but is it proving to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head too with the returns thing. I just want to touch on that really quick. Like in 2018, I remember our annual meeting, we were talking about how to reduce returns and it was like a huge focus. And then you consider why. I mean, you know, just like you said, Lawrence made that point and said, why are we so focused on how many animals get returned? 
you know, obviously it's, it, you know, we'd rather it didn't happen, but if it did happen, it's, it's still, it's moving somebody into the rescue, like arena into the community. It is saving a life, no matter what, how you look at it. So that, that needs to be, that's still a win. It's a different type of win, but it's a win. And, and I think retraining our brains to say like, we have this idea of rescue that's 50 years old. And now we're saying, well, what's the new rescue? You know, that stick in the mud mentality isn't going to help anybody. Yeah. Our, so, you know, just to like break it down, what the, the things that we changed for January was that we reduced the adoption application questions to remove those pieces like fenced in yard, shared walls, address attributes. Um, we, re- we didn't, we're not doing vet checks anymore, which we, we have always done. We aren't doing landlord checks anymore. We aren't doing HOA checks. We aren't doing city pet limit checks. Um, and now we're reducing the amount of applications sent through from four to five to two. And in 2022, 58% of adoptions were completed within seven days of finding an adopter. So this data is a little different. I'm going to say these numbers and I just want to, to like call out that, that's after uh, somebody meets an animal and says, I want to adopt this. 58% of dogs and cats were home within seven days. Since the changes, 73% of adoptions have been completed within seven days of the initial application. So that, that 58 to 73 would be a huge number no matter what of like reducing the amount of time an animal stays in rescue. But it's it's, we don't even have the comprehensive data on how long it was previously between application and the animal in the home. I'm get, I mean, it's just, so, so that had, that was a huge number for us to see because now we're saying, okay, the sooner that we, those animals find that home and can go home, the more animals we can save, the more open homes we have. That's super exciting. And then just at its core adoptions year over year for January, 2023 are up 9% from the last two years. And that's, 20, January 2021, that's still COVID. That's still crazy. Like everyone and their mom and their cousin and their uncle want a dog or got a dog or a cat. So just seeing that in the first month of these changes has made us realize that these were the right things to do. We still have a lot farther to go. You know, I think that we have a lot of opportunity, but it's really cool to see that those changes have resulted in trackable data that's allowed us to save more lives, which is really cool. Well, if one of the fear was returns, are you currently being overrun with returns? No. <laughs> right. And and that was always the question mark, right? Like, is this going to change? And no, the, 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 the answer is no. We're not overwhelmed by returns. We haven't seen any change in the return data points or percentages. You know, it's the first month, so we might see some adjustment to that over the next few months. But it was exciting to to know that there was no initial like ping pong effect or, you know, anything like that, that we felt like, oh, crap, we did this wrong or, you know, this is going to be a problem. Like I said before, we've had we had fosters that were outspoken and said, we hate this. We don't think it's the right way to do it. But on the flip side, we also have fosters that had many that emailed me and said, I'm reengaging in secondhand hounds because of this. I see the value of reducing barriers. We have this great relationship. So I don't know if you know this about Second Hounds, but we also run a um, social services endeavor in Minneapolis. We have a, another brick and mortar facility in Minneapolis that houses a food shelf that distributes tons and tons, literal tons, 161 tons of dog and cat food last year. It also 
offers free training courses, um, low cost and free vet care to pet owners. And we saw this very distinct juxtaposition between who we were adopting to and who we were supporting as pet owners. And we realized that the pet owners that are were, that are clients of our food shelf are amazing pet owners. And we felt like, well, we can't go into these communities and say, you should adopt, right? Like one of our, one of our board members is the, uh, her name is Nancy Corsa. She is the executive director of Black Business Enterprises based in Minnesota. She has been kind of polling and surveying her community and they don't adopt from animal rescue. She's like, I'm sorry, this is crap. And I'm like, no, this is exactly what we need to see because we have to make these changes. But I couldn't in good conscience go to these communities, our uh, low cost communities, our tribal communities and say, yeah, yeah, you're part of the conversation. Come adopt from us and then have them jumping through hoops and never getting selected. I mean, that that was a non that's that's a non starter. So it was like, all right, well, we need to adjust our processes so that it is inclusive and that we can go into these communities and say, you are just as good as anybody else. And we're excited to have you on board. And that's kind of the next step for Secondhand Hounds in 2023 is we've made the changes. And now we're ready to go and say, yes, the polls from, you know, mid 2022, I can't wait to pull those same, that same community mid 2024 and see if these changes have actually affected something in the Twin Cities and moved that, you know, moved that marker. I'd like to ask you about the rollout of these new processes, Rachel, because I think the change management part of any change, but particularly changes like this that are quite big and unlikely to garner unanimous support, how you roll those out is really key to the success of them, right? So, you know, you said earlier you did have some folks who were upset. You also said you had people email and say they would come back on as fosters because of the changes. How did you work through all of this to try to gain that consensus? And what has that feedback been? Um, I think that was, it was tricky. We talked a lot about it as a leadership team about how to appropriately, you know, translate what our thoughts were and, and what we wanted to accomplish into something that was you know, pretty easily digestible, digestible and simple, right? I, I didn't want to overcomplicate. I'm a good person. I can overcomplicate anything probably, but I was like, how do we make this very simple? And actually we shared your podcast with our whole foster base and said, if you don't understand what we're saying in this three paragraph email, please listen to this podcast and then let's have a good conversation about it. So what we decided to do was we we rolled it out internally to our staff first and we said this is the direction of the organization but we're we're here to have an open conversation. So if you have concerns let's talk through them. If there were there were a few staff members that were questioning the direction and um once we talked to them and and they understood kind of the why behind the changes, uh it became clear that they were willing to hear us out and willing to kind of r- ride the tide and see what happened. After that, we decided to send out an email to our foster base uh, as a first step and and say and, and have a really nice way of explaining in an email. And it sounds like you've seen the email, you know, kind of why we're doing it, what our hopes were for it. Obviously called out the podcast to say, go listen to this if you're questioning. And then invited them to interact in several ways. We said, please email like anytime. Let's talk about it. We will be doing a webinar, a Zoom webinar. We will be doing a Facebook live in our foster and our internal foster group and answering questions live. What I found really interesting was that the people that were excited about the changes were the ones who emailed me directly and were like, I 
love this. I am re-engaging in secondhand hounds. I'm excited to see where you're going. I think it's the future of animal rescue. Way to go. Bravo. I didn't get one single negative feedback via email. But when when we did the lives, the Zoom lives, that's when those people came out. Because I think they wanted to see if other people felt the same way. I think that they wanted to say like, these are my concerns and I want others to see our concerns too. Like maybe you wrote Rachel a nice email saying you were so excited, but have you considered X, Y, and Z? And that was really interesting because I think it was important, but it was outside of my comfort zone for sure. Because some of the questions that were being thrown at me, I was like, I don't have a need. I'm pretty good at talking on my feet, but like, you know, I, I, some of these questions, I was like, I don't have an answer for that. And I will get back to you and I will look into that or even that's a good point, And we will consider that if it becomes a problem. I think at the end of the day, our fosters want to be heard. They are the advocates for these animals. They are bringing animals into their home. They don't need to be doing that. And so I never want our fosters to not feel heard. But there was a very clear line in the sand between fosters who were talking about this because they cared very deeply for their animals and they were concerned about the nuance. And there were people that just didn't like the direction of the organization and where we were headed. And I point blank on both of those lives said, I appreciate everything you've done for secondhand hounds, but it sounds like we're no longer aligned. And I want, like, I, I want people to be free to make their own decisions. There are so many rescues and organizations that are begging for people to help there's a fit for everybody. I hope that you stay along on this ride because I'm excited about it. And I think the direction that we're going is interesting and unique and hopefully will become the norm. But I am not here to force anybody who's not comfortable with these changes to stay. But that being said, like, please listen to these resources, like, you know, understand that at the core of it, our goal is to save more lives and to make rescue a more inclusive community. That's that those are the two things at the end of the day. And and I think that all of this is, is helping us get there, which is super exciting. Any sense yet as to how many volunteers you might have lost? Um, I, you know, I would say under 10. And we have just about a thousand registered foster homes. So I, I think that most people said, I'll stick it out. I'm going to see what, you know, I, we could lose a lot in the next six months. But I also think that we have, I've, I've, like I said, I've heard from multiple people that said, I'm doing this again. I'm re-signing up. I'm re-engaging because of these changes. And that was exciting to see for sure. I, I think that whenever you disrupt a system, you have to just assume that you're going to lose some people. That's part of change and it's part of growth. And I think that the people that we are going to be attracting are going to be the kind of people that are going to make rescue community more inclusive. And that is the most, that's what I choose to focus on. Obviously not to an idiotic part point of, you know, if we're losing everybody and we have 20 fosters left, then I'll say, all right, we did something wrong here. <laughs> but, you know, at this point, I'm feeling very confident in these changes. And, and I think that it is, just more excitement than anything else. So the reason I'm asking that is not to dwell on the negative, but I think what often holds people back from making bigger changes like this, it's the threat or concern over losing donors, losing volunteers, losing staff. And that's a big worry, right? So I was just curious if you'd seen an exodus and you know, you're saying it's about 1%. It's not insignificant, but not enough, I imagine, to disrupt your operations. Uh, and as you said, you know, you might have actually 
uh, gain folks with, with people coming back and re-engaging as fosters. So I want to ask about your intake. You said you pull from shelters. You pull animals from Minneapolis, Animal, yep. animal Care Control. control. Mm-hmm. Yep, back, yep. Yeah, I have to try to remember all of the ways each community names its shelters. That's good. I'm in Thank you. Thank you. If I was granted wishes for animal welfare, Rachel, and I could just snap my fingers and make something happen, it's that we'd stop with any kind of us and them type mentality, right? With with shelters and rescues that, you know, this belief that somehow the work is so different, like, well, you do what you're doing and I'm going to do what I'm doing and being disconnected, it's fine. And and again, just a disclaimer here, this is John Dunn's opinion, uh, my take. I'm not saying that I think all rescues should be required to pull from shelters. I'm not saying that. But I think we have to accept that the work we're all doing is connected, right? The missions may differ. Your rescue might be different than mine. And then we're both different than the function the shelter performs every day. But it's all animal welfare, you know, from the micro down to our communities, macro, the whole country, right? We're all connected. And I think we too often separate from each other. And and in doing so, we forget consciously or subconsciously that what each of us does affects the other like we're all part of the same ecosystem pulling animals directly links organizations to the larger issues of the community right but even if you're not pulling pets from shelters every interaction you have with someone in the community reflects on all of us like you said earlier with applicants to an average member of the public a denial can have a profound impact right a very long lasting one someone may never go to adopt again because they just think it's pointless. But the more connected you are to the shelter, I do think it's much easier to understand the community issue and maybe understand how, you know, your individual organization, the role that you can play. Yeah, I definitely. I think that um, in general, just our arc of learning over the last few years has helped with that. Um, We are in a, um, I have several groups where we speak to the leaders at AHS and MAC. Um, actually, one of our, our newest board member is the is one of the vets at Minneapolis Animal Care and Control. So, just trying to forge partnerships and and understand that we're not in this alone. I think that I've always been of the 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 thought process that shelters serve such a separate purpose than rescues, and and anybody who ever like spoke poorly of a shelter, I'd say you can't compare them. It's not apples to apples. We we pick and choose what animals we take. Of course, our euthanasia rates are going to be much lower. Like, you know, we we have a different, we, we are, their returns are probably going to be higher because they don't know what these animals are like in homes. They take way more, you know, the Humane Society is taking 23,000 animals a year. We're taking 2,300 animals a year, you know, like you cannot compare it. But I do think that these just reductions to barriers in general and just thinking through how people get animals and get their pet has caused us to think about how can we collaborate to make a bigger difference. And and we've made headway. We've made steps towards that, which is exciting as well. Um, you know, a few months ago, we had a conversation with uh, Animal Humane Society about they had extra kennel space and they were like, maybe we can house some if you help us with like fostering out through your foster program, some of our like pregnant animals that don't, wouldn't do well in a shelter environment. Like, what does that look like? You know, instead of saying more, more, more for secondhand hounds, it's like, okay, we could either build our own shelter or we could say, let's partner with shelters that are already built and spread that awareness and that love and, and, and use less resources from donors so that 
the, the dollars are spread, they, they go farther. And that's what I love to do as an executive director. Like I get really excited about thinking outside of the box. And when I have these meetings with different like CEOs or CMOs or COOs of different organizations and how we can work together to, to actually change the face of animal welfare in Minnesota, that's what gets me super excited about the future. Because honestly, with collaboration and with introspection and with, I think, ability to change and ability to recognize what maybe hasn't worked in the past, that is what leads us to this like aha moment, these aha moments that really will result in us eventually, right, being the no-kill nation that Best Friends always talks about. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. If we're all operating in our little tiny microchasm, it's never going to work. But if we're, we're together and we're, we're thinking about these projects and these problems as overarching, then that's when the magic happens. So... That's exciting. Can we talk about the unconscious bias bit? You know, you talked about the founding of Secondhand Hounds, founded by you, a white suburban woman. You worked with other suburban white women to get it off the ground. You were doing work in predominantly white suburban areas of the community. Uh, you know, I hear you talk about your background and you acknowledge how you approached your work and that it wasn't inclusive. But man, that's not easy to do, Rachel. That's not easy to do as an individual or as a leader or, you know, as organizations. It is hard, but I also think that the more people that are willing to recognize that they were wrong, like I love talking about it. And maybe that's crazy, but I think that anybody I speak to, I'll be like, I have unconscious bias. I have made huge mistakes in the rescue. And and I think that vulnerability and saying like, we've all made mistakes. Nobody has zero racism. No white person has zero racism um, in their in their heart and in their lives. I think it's crazy to assume that we have to, that we can't grow and learn and change and realize that things that happened in the past actually did perpetuate racism or that white saviorism. I used to be somebody who in the rescue, like definitely had some white saviory moments like, look what we're doing to help these communities. Or like, look at us. I know a big example is in our tribal work. We've been working with tribal communities for about a decade. And the way that I used to work with tribal communities was going into tribal land and taking animals that didn't have homes and bringing them to the Twin Cities and finding them adopters. And I did not realize the damage that that does to that community. And I'm going to talk about Mara Lou again because she's amazing. But she took me aside, I think it was in 2018. And she said, what, what is your goal with tribal communities? And I said, well, I want to save lives. I want to take animals and find them homes. And she said, that word, take, is the problem. She said, these are communities. These are Communities that have been here longer than any of us have been. And yet they've had everything taken from them. This is generational trauma. This is historical trauma. And you're perpetuating it. You're adding to it. You're taking it. You're saying you're not good enough to have these animals in your community. So we're going to take them out. We're going to find white people to adopt them, basically, when you strip it down. And I had never considered that. I burst into tears because it was something that it hit, it hit me that I was the problem. And I didn't mean to be the problem. I don't think I'm the devil. I don't think I'm horrible. Uh, but it was like, 
I can't believe that I didn't think about that. But that's what it is. That is unconscious bias. You don't know what you don't know. And once you learn it, and, and the biggest thing is surrounding yourself with people that are going to be able to teach you. And not like, please teach me everything. Like I'm going to find black and brown people and say, please teach me everything you know. You have to seek out those circles and you have to earn trust. And once you earn that trust, you're going to learn so much. And like, that's, I'm still learning. I make mistake. I made a mistake like two months ago and got called out on it. And I'm like, thank you. Like I, I'm, I'm a imperfect person trying to make a difference. And like, what a beautiful thing that we can grow and change. And like now we've earned respect in these communities, the tribal communities. Um, it's no longer this like riding in on this horse and saving the day. It's like, no, no, no. Now I have partnerships and like, I call up tribal community members and say like, can I get your opinion on this? And they might do the same sometimes to me. And the events that we have, there are collaborative and they're about spay and neuter efforts. And they're about supporting adoption on tribal land for other tribal members and like opening your mind to the fact that community animals isn't a bad thing. Again, this is all like we've We've been brought up to say, this is how animals should live with a person. This is the perfect adopter. And it's rocked my world to say, that's not the reality. There are so many ways that an animal can be loved. There are so many ways that an animal can be cared for. And like, I think that my, like my brain has, it's just, it's like, it's mind blowing. Like, I know that's like such a, it, it feels like a silly thing to say, but it really has like just blown my mind the changes that we has, as an organization have made, but me personally has made. And I look back at like 23-year-old Rachel starting Secondhand Hounds, and I think, man, you're going to make a lot of mistakes, but like very proud of the progress and know we have much farther to go, but I'm eager to go there. And like, so is my leadership staff. And so are the community behind me. And like, that is what makes me so happy and excited for the future. But I, I love going there. I say go there, like talk about racism, talk about unconscious bias. If we can't talk about it, then people aren't going to even recognize it in themselves ever and say like mistakes are part of the process. Yeah, I've made so many and that's okay. I'm trying, I'm trying to be better. Like that's at the end of the day, we just have to try to be better. Another thing I wanted to come back to is you mentioned your pet food pantry and the work you do to support pet owners in under-resourced communities. You're talking to those pet owners, right? And giving them resources and realizing that none of them would have gotten their pet from you. Like what? Like how, how jarring is that? <laughs> it's so jarring, but you care about them enough to make sure they're good, that their pets are good. Mm -hmm. You're offering assistance to help them keep their pets, right. but you just weren't adopting to people in those zip codes, right? Like right. That, what an aha moment that must've been. Totally. And, and we, and we, that's still, that's still something that we're working through because adoption fees are expensive. Like we don't have a program right now where we have, you know, adoption fees that are scaled. And, and that's something that as a leadership team, we talk about a lot because, then you go through the process of, well, adoption fees are a big part of our revenue. And so how do you balance? How do you say, and, and who, and how do you, um, it, God, it's just, it's such a complex issue. And I don't have, I don't have all the answers as the, as the end of the, the day. Like, obviously none of us have all the answers, but I, I think that's the point I want to make is that we have come a long way, but we have not gone far enough. Like we're, we're eager to go farther, but we have to also think about how it affects the business 
aspect because we want to be here forever and we I want this to outlive me so if we talk about that then we have to think it's just it's just a it's a multi it's a multifaceted complex issue and I think that's what we always are working through is like how do we make adoption accessible for everybody but also how do we keep sustaining our business how do we I think in business in general especially in animal rescue we're asked to judge people every day based on something and right now, one of the barriers to adoption is, is adoption fee. And so do you lower adoption fees for everybody? Do you make require proof of need? I mean, these are, these are serious questions that I don't have answers to yet that we're working through, but at least they're questions on the table, right? And, 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 we, and we have the right people that are helping us have those conversations to figure out what the next step for second announce is. But I totally. At this point, what are you most concerned about? You know, you sound like you've got it under control, but are there things that 2 a.m. on a Wednesday night, Rachel is wide awake in Minneapolis thinking about hopefully nothing? Yeah, no. A lot of things keep me up at night. Um, my puppy, I just adopted a puppy. That That's one of them. <laughs> but I, I would say that for me, it's how to discuss these changes without it becoming white saviory is like, is that's my main thing right now is, is how to have these conversations without saying, I know everything I have been woke. Like, no, I I'm still so new on my journey that I don't feel like I have the right to be that spokesperson. I believe that that doesn't belong to me, but at the same time, if I can put ourselves out there and be vulnerable and, and show a blueprint of change to other white-led organizations that might be grappling with some of these same issues and these same questions, that's a good thing. So, you know, it's it's scaling your own impact too. You know, I, I do believe that because this is such a whitewashed landscape, animal rescue in general, animal welfare in general, that we need to we need to hold space. And I think that's I guess what I grapple with is how to hold that space for black and brown people. And how to not even hold space, but like give up our own space so that there is more voices heard. We've been making a really conscious effort to make sure that our board is 25% BIPOC and hopefully someday 50% BIPOC or more, right? Like why, why even put a limit on it? And right now we're at 25% and, and, and it's, it's already been so impactful and helpful for me as a leader. But I do think about it. I think I love my leadership team. I love being the executive director. But like, if I really want to disrupt, I'd say, guess what, we're all losing our jobs. Like, you know, and and and, and how do you how do you grapple with it? Rachel Mayrose, executive director of Secondhand Hounds in Minneapolis, you are a certified badass. I've loved this conversation. And of course, I truly appreciate you listening to the podcast. And I'm humbled that it's had an impact on you and your organization. And uh, I'll be checking in with you to hear more about your progress in the next few months, because I think your story really will help others who maybe need reassurance that making changes like this, they're big, they're scary. But, you know, ultimately, if you do it and you do it in the right way, you're not going to bring down the organization, you know? Well, thank you for being willing to listen. I could talk all day, as you can probably tell. So I appreciate you letting us, you know, have like just to talk about it because it is It's exciting. We're all excited about it. Good luck with everything. And thanks again, Rachel. Thank you so much. Thank you to Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Kim Clonch for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.